0: Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ring of Fire, NPR, Tom Hartman, and the Young Turks.
1: This is Ring of Fire on Air America Radio. I'm Robert F. Kennedy, Jr. at the Pace Law School in White Plains, New York, here with Mike Papantonio in Pensacola, Florida. If you want to talk with us on Ring of Fire, give us a call at 866-389-FIRE. That's 866-389-3473.
2: Bobby, we have Paul in Columbus, Ohio, listens on WTPG, 1230 AM. Paul, how
3: are you? I'm doing good. How are you, folks? We're doing good. Good. What's the question? If there's a legacy that our current administration could leave uh, for our children, grandchildren, what have you, other than astronomical debt, it would be to somehow redirect our energy to energy. In other words, we spend billions, I don't know, fighting people who don't particularly want to fight us, et cetera. But the point is, if we could redirect, in other words, going to Mars might be a nice idea, okay? But... If we would take the same resources and plow that into research and practical applications, uh, we would be leaving um, future generations in a little bit better shape. As it stands, the uh, interests of uh, oil and what have you uh, are simply stalling us. And it's embarrassing to say that Europe is stealing a march on the United States. They simply are directing a lot of their um, economics toward uh, renewable uh, forms of energy, and we are not.
2: Yeah, let me plug well, Bobby. Right. Let me plug Bobby's book. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've picked it up, Paul. It's called Crimes Against Nature. It is you know, not just because we do a radio show together. Uh, it is an excellent book, and it covers this topic probably better than any book on the market. Uh, Bobby, what's your response to what he's talking about? Well, you know, energy efficiency
1: is not just good for the environment. It's good for our country. It reduces our dependence on foreign oil. It reduces our vulnerability to price shocks on the international oil market. It reduces the entanglements that we have with, you know, these foreign dictators in the Middle East who who hate democracy, who are despised by their own people, um, and who are – financing the terrorism. We are, you know, we're financing the terrorism with our oil purchases right now. And that's really the gravest threat to our national security. If we reduced our oil consumption, it would also give us a cleaner environment and make us wealthier at home. Right now, we spend about 15% of our GNP on energy consumption. Japan spends only 7%. Germany spends about the same thing. That means that every product that we make uh, costs... Uh, 8% more at its inception, and it makes us less competitive. And so the best thing that we can do for our economy to make us more competitive in the globe is to be more efficient. Pollution is waste, and we need to eliminate waste and eliminate pollution. So what's good for the economy is also good for the environment. If we raise fuel economy standards by one mile per gallon, we can generate twice the amount of oil that's in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. If we raise fuel economy standards by 2.7 miles per gallon, we yield more barrels of oil than we now import from Iraq and Kuwait combined. If we can raise fuel economy by 7.6 miles per gallon, which is quite easy, we can uh, yield the same amount of oil that we now import from the entire Persian Gulf. We could eliminate Persian Gulf imports in this country simply by a, a, a really a marginal increase in fuel efficiency in our automobile fleet. And that's a much better investment for us than the than the the three quarters of a trillion dollars that the GAO now says that we're going to spend in Iraq. Um, if we spent a fraction of that three quarters of a trillion, to, you know, and this was done before, not just by a Democratic president in 1979, because of Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, we had off fuel economy standards in this country that got us from about 18 miles per gallon, which was our national average in 79, to 27.5 miles per gallon in 1986. And that year, David Stockman, who was the budget director for Reagan and Ronald Reagan, rolled back. they were Those fuel economy standards were intended to get us to about 40 miles per gallon, by the year 2000, if we had done that, if we had stayed on that track, if Reagan had not rolled those back as a favor to Detroit in the oil industry, we would have eliminated 100 percent of Persian Gulf oil imports into this country after 1986. We wouldn't have had to import one drop of Persian Gulf oil. That means that we wouldn't have gone into the first Iraq war. We wouldn't have had troops in Saudi Arabia and the World Trade Center would still be standing.
4: And we would be- have
1: changed history by simply making ourselves more efficient and we'd be a much stronger country and every American would be richer. You figure this out, um, Mike. I, if I I switched recently from a 22-mile-per-gallon minivan that I'd been driving for years to a Prius that gets around almost 40-45 uh, miles per gallon, well, I'm saving about $1,000 a year in gasoline. So. What if every American were saving 500 hundred, six hundred, seven hundred, a thousand dollars a year? You remember when George Bush gave us all a three hundred uh, rebate on our taxes? and, <laughs> and he said sorry. and he said that was a, that was a national economic <laughs> stimulus package, and he had to gut the Social Security trust Fund in order to do it. Well what if we were all getting three or four hundred dollars a year in cash or five hundred or a thousand simply from fuel economy standards? Not just once, not just one year hit year after year after year after year that's a national energy program it's not only that it's an it's a foreign policy program you know Paul it's an Bobby, economic stimulus Bobby, program Bobby, paul
2: started the question i mean by really raising a really good point he says we've put a man on the moon uh, if you think about it, we've mapped the human DNA, we've landed robots on Mars. Uh, American scientists and engineers can do whatever they have to do if they have some leadership. And for the for, for the shrub to stand up in front of the American public and say that we're addicted to oil is if he's done something to help, if you look at the shrub's record, here, here's the real record, that Bush specifically... Pushed for renewable energy cuts in his last budget. Bush did. It wasn't his. wasn't his underlings. George Bush pushed for renewable energy cuts. He he rejected a bipartisan effort to to set goals for renewable energy. If you'll remember, uh, th- there was a requirement at one point that utility companies would have to generate at least ten percent of their electricity with un- renewable fuels by 2020. Well, he did away with that. Uh, we don't know what happened with the secret meetings with. Dick Cheney and his his secret energy task force but we do know this here's something we do know we know he were he refused to meet with a single
1: environmental group we know that he refused to meet with with he had one 15 minute meeting he met with every big fossil fuel producer in the country he had one 15 minute meeting with renewable energy producers and after five minutes in the White House in the West Wing he escorted them out to the rose garden for a photo op. <laughs> so, you know,
2: as it, and as that's it he really? And cares. he
1: refused to meet with any environmental group. Not one environmental group during that three-month process was able to get into those meetings. I mean, he, he didn't even have a pro uh, forma I mean,
2: meeting with yes. us. There, there was no substitute at all. our Hidden Kitchen series continues. The Kitchen Sisters Nikki Silva and Davia Nelson have been traveling Texas and sent us a tale from the tailpipe. They call it Deep Fried Fuel, a biodiesel kitchen vision.
4: I'm Carl Cornelius, and we're at Carl's Corner Truck Stop at Carl's Corner, Texas. It's just a little truck stop coming out of Dallas, conceived out of a dream. Hey, strangers. welcome to Carl's This used to have a swimming pool right in the middle of it. Had a hot tub on stage, had girls stand on their head and gargle peanut butter. It was a good time here. Rick, would you put on uh, number two there for me? This is a record they wrote about me, The Dreamer. I think it's number two. They call him a dreamer. Willie Nelson called me one time and said, what are you doing? And I said, Willie, I'm shutting down. He said, what? I'm going to shut the truck stop down. He said, well... Carl, just shut it down. Just shut the, that young thing down. And the next morning he comes and said, Don't shut it down. And he said, uh, Carl, you want to put one of your lanes in out there as biodiesel. And I said, Well, do you believe in the damn stuff, Willie? He said, Well, yeah. And I said, Well, let's do the whole thing biodiesel. Carl's gone. Biodiesel well, to be made of soybean, it can be made of uh, casper bean or uh, peanut oil, vegetable oil, anything like that, sunflower seeds, mustard seed, Willie said, they're doing out in uh, California right now. Isn't that right, Willie?
5: Yeah, and also it can be made out of the uh, grease traps in the restaurants, and uh, that's what I'm running my cars on in Maui. And there's
6: Willie's wife, Annie, put the bug in his head a few years ago when she saw biodiesel vehicles on Maui. Willie's Touring Bus runs on vegetable oil and, uh, and bio Willie now. My name is Joe Nick Petoskey. I've been writing about Texans for about 35 years. Biodiesel is uh, fuel that's made out of stuff you can grow and vegetable oil.
4: Kitchen grease. Everybody uses a lot of grease. The whole concept with Rudolph Diesel back in the early days was the one that perfected the diesel engine, and it ran off of peanut oil. And then the big boys come along and oil and everything like that, and so it took over where Rudolph
5: left off. Just touching the end of your finger and actually taste it. Amazing, you run an 18 wheeler on it. So we take soybean oil that comes out of mainly the Midwest and then we uh, refine it. I'm Peter Bell, Earth Bar Fuels Distribution, co founder of the BioWilly brand in Dallas, Texas. Carl's was really the place where it started, and we were the first place. Anywhere in the country selling B20 to truckers, which is 20% biodiesel, 80% diesel fuel. We might no longer be known as Texas T, but Texas B. I'm driving this truck on a mountain road, got a hot rod rig and a flying
4: low. My eyes are filled with diesel smoke, these hairpin curves ain't no joke. Diesel smoke,
3: dangerous
4: My name's Larry Fowler, I'm out of St. Louis, Missouri, and we're at Carl's Corner Truck Stop. I haul chemicals. I'm a tanker. So I haul hazardous material all the time. Biodiesel burns cleaner. The not as much coming out the exhaust. Every chance I get, I get it. I think our politicians sold us out. Get away from the foreign oil more, and not let the foreign oil company run us. I'm a biodiesel rebel. Ooh. Now that's just what I am. This is our land of freedom that Bin Laden's or sat down.
7: Should be obvious to everyone. We're running out of dinosaur wine. This is Kinky Friedman. I'm a compassionate redneck. I'm 61 years old, which is too young for Medicare and uh, too old for women to care. I have the band, the Texas Jew Boys, and uh, I'm uh, running for governor here in Texas. Willie would be my uh, chief of the new uh, Texas Energy Commission. Of all the 10 or 12 particles that they've isolated that make Houston the number one polluted city in America, diesel is the worst.
8: My name's Chris Powers. I'm the founder of Houston Biodiesel. I teach a class on how to make biodiesel safely in your own home, you know, the kitchen way. Because you can make it in a blender in your kitchen, too. Now, I wouldn't use that blender again for a margarita or anything, but if you have a sacrificial blender, want the recipe? One liter of vegetable
5: oil. There's all these folks out there doing what's called homebrew.
8: Eight grams of potassium hydroxide.
5: People go collect this oil from restaurants, Donald's dumpsters, donut places, and they take it home, they filter it with coffee filters, and they react it with an alcohol, just like we do in a big refinery.
8: There's also the Dr. Pepper method. You take a two-liter Dr. Pepper
5: bottle. This whole homebrew thing is how biodiesel basically started in the United States, sort of a cottage industry.
4: Yes, sir.
6: How you doing today?
4: Well,
3: I'm riding around through North Carolina into Virginia right
6: now. I was on uh, Bill Mack's Trucking Show on XM Radio not too long ago, and it was uh, Willie Wednesday. And Willie calls in and takes calls from listeners who are largely truckers.
3: What can I do
4: for you today? Were you aware that there's a glut of peanuts on the market? nothing's going to be done with them either stored or thrown away. Well, that don't sound right. They
2: don't sound right. If you can make biodiesel out
6: of them. all anybody was talking about was biodiesel. How this is such a good thing for the family farmer, for rural communities in general. Just to hear the truckers talk about it gave me hope. A
1: truck stop and cafe.
4: Carl's Corner, Texas. We want an alternate fuel city. We want to be totally independent of everything. We want wind power, solar power, biodiesel power, soybeans and stuff like that. If the like farmers and the truckers
7: get aboard in a big way, the soccer moms will not be far behind. It's a way of having clean energy. I mean, these are reachable stars.
3: Carl's Corner, Texas
7: There was an incident in Colorado where a bear attacked a biodiesel truck because it smelled like French fries. This is the downside of biodiesel.
2: Deep Fried Fuel was produced by the Kitchen Sisters with KUT Austin and mixed by Jim McKee. Hidden Kitchens, Stories, Recipes, and More is now out in paperback. Check out the book and biodiesel at npr.org.
1: now is David Sirota, who is co-chairperson of the Progressive Legislative Action Plan and a senior editor at In These Times Magazine. And of course, he's a regular guest on the Al Franken show where he has his own theme song. He's with us to talk about his new book, Hostile Takeover, how big money and corruption conquered our government and how we can take it back. David, thanks so much for joining us on Ring of Fire.
8: Thanks for having me.
1: I have to say, I wish I'd written this book because it's just such a brilliant summary of what's happening today with corporations really taking over our government and our government beginning to represent the interests of corporations rather than the public in a democracy. Just generally, how did that happen to our country?
8: Well, I think what's happened is, is, that, is that big money interests, as I call them in the book, have really learned how to abuse the system of legalized bribery that we now have for a campaign finance system. I and mean, we have a system of government now that, that makes candidates rely on private money Uh, to run for office, and that is essentially legalized bribery hardwired into the system because the private money goes to candidates with the expectations of legislative favors. And so over the last 30 years, I think big money interests have realized how to perfect using that system to make sure that our government no longer protects ordinary citizens, but instead works on behalf of those interests that buy access to the political table. I think that's the key point here, is that corruption is not just Duke Cunningham riding around in a rolls-royce or tom delay and uh... you know being flown to tropical locations the worst forms of corruption is that which is legal And that means that the language itself in how the political system talks to us about given issues is artificially distorted to make sure that the outcomes of all public policy debates are only those that serve big money interests. I'll just give you an example. The energy debate in this country was largely a debate about which tax breaks to give to which oil companies. It wasn't a debate about finding new sources of energy, renewable sources of energy, doing conservation. It was a debate where politicians were standing up and telling us that there's more and more fossil fuels on earth, but world will never run out of oil. That's a direct quote from various right-wing columnists. And so the debate itself was distorted by big oil companies, which had bought access to the political table, bought off politicians, spent a huge amount of money on think tanks to make sure that the debate never actually touched on or considered public policies that might actually solve the problem and confront big oil. Talk about our tax system. How does that
1: favor the big guys and screw the little guys?
8: The big myth that we've heard over the last couple of years from the Bush administration, directly from them, is that the wealthy pay too much in taxes. I cite various examples of both right-wing politicians and Bush administration officials at the Treasury Department saying that, that, the, that the wealthy pay too much in taxes. That was a justification for their tax cutting, dividend tax cuts, upper income bracket tax cuts. What really is happening is that the tax system is siphoning off money from the middle class very, very far up the income ladder. Uh, in the last five years, the, the tax burden has shifted radically to the middle class uh, and decreased for the super wealthy. What they don't say, of course, is that 95% of Fortune 500 companies pay less than 5% in tax. That's from government data. That's Government Accountability Office. We have the second lowest tax rate in the industrialized world next to Iceland. And so that justification, the idea that we have high corporate tax rates, is used to justify more and more corporate tax cuts and corporate tax loopholes that, of course, cut into the social service that we can provide, explode the deficit, and force higher taxes on ordinary people at the state and local level.
1: And as you point out in the book, under the Bush tax cuts, the top 15% of income earners in our country get two-thirds of the benefits. That's right. um, With the top 1% getting $600 billion bonanza. And on the other end, uh, the bottom sixty percent will have gotten an illusory less than eighteen percent of the benefits.
8: That's right, and then we can put that into exact stats. The administration, again, again, this is a, the way the language is distorted. They said that the average tax cut in the dividend tax cut, the tax cut on stock, would be about one thousand ninety-three dollars. The administration used this ter- this average rhetoric to hide what was the what was the real case that most people, the average American, would get somewhere between I think. 80 bucks or 100 bucks, while millionaires would get somewhere in the range of 20 to 30 to 50,000 dollars, depending on how high up the income ladder they were.
1: Let, let's talk about the minimum wage it's $5.15 an hour. It hasn't been raised since 1997, and it's now at the lowest point in real wages, in terms of real wages, since 1949.
8: Right. And the, and the issue is how has Congress been able to justify not raising the minimum wage under that? Because they don't come out and tell us, you know, we're just not going to raise the minimum wage because people like Walmart and various other huge corporations don't want us to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. Well, the answer is, is that they've said they've given us various lies, myths, and half-truths, as I detail in the book. The biggest one is that if we raise the minimum wage, it will hurt job growth. I had a debate with John Stossel on CNBC where he, he's been peddling that lie. And I basically pointed out the very simple statistic in states that have raised their minimum wage above the federal minimum wage, those states have created jobs at a far faster rate than states that have not uh, raised their minimum wage. The other idea is that minimum wage will raise prices on consumers. Again, that's a lie as well. In 1997, when we raised the minimum wage, inflation remained at a historic low. The Agriculture Department has found that when you raise the minimum wage, this is government data, that it will will result in, at most, one quarter of one percent increase on necessity. So basically, a minimum wage raise will result in a 25-cent increase in a $100 grocery bill. That, again, that idea that minimum wage will raise, raise prices and thus hurt consumers, again, a lie. Congress hasn't raised the minimum wage, and so we're living in a country now where corporate profits are skyrocketing, worker productivity is increasing, and wages are stagnating. And that's a really important point people need to understand. Corporations are making more money than ever. Workers per hour are producing more, and yet workers are making less. That means that we don't live in a country anymore where what's good for GM or good for corporate America is good for ordinary Americans. More and more of the benefits are going to fewer and fewer people.
5: I think you know it's true Situations where it's easy To look down on
6: America was in the middle of a boom-bust, you know, thing. The speculation, the railroad, real estates, uh, things. Were, there were all kinds of scams going on, uh, phony businesses, pyramid schemes, all kinds of stuff that that was causing booms and busts and attempts to monopolize the the farm market, particularly in the areas where the railroads went through. People would people would uh, go in and, try and create create essentially trusts. And, and try and squeeze out small farmers. And this is, you know, the Grange came about in part by independent farmers trying to fight back against this kind of stuff, particularly the railroads. But th- this was a bad one. 4,923 companies, businesses closed in the panic of 1857. And that, that was a big deal back then. And for two years, I mean, people took to the streets. They were, they, people were starving. This, of course, in the this was the, the tail end of the first middle the first American middle class, and this was now now we were fully in the grip of laissez-faire, unbridled raw capitalism, and that's what it brought us. And I would submit to you that that's what the Bushies that's what the Cons want to bring us again. And part of the process involves bankrupting America. And just, just, just taking us out, just, just running us so badly into debt that we can't do anything other than service the debt. And I, I mean, they're they're aggressively working at that right now. The Bush administration. Every child born today is born with a twenty-eight thousand three hundred seventy-seven dollar and eighty-one cent debt. Our national debt right now eight point five trillion dollars. Specifically, eight trillion five hundred billion seven hundred forty-seven million two hundred thirty thousand one hundred sixty-four dollars and fifty cents. Well, it just went up another hundred thousand. Just went up another two hundred. Yeah. Family of four in America one hundred thirteen thousand five hundred eleven dollars in debt. That's on on your behalf. It's not. That's not our personal debt. That's the debt of the nation. That's how badly the 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 Bushies have have run us into debt. And now we've got this war going on. This 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 war in Iraq that is tremendously enriching the cronies of the Bushies. I mean, gee, what a surprise, right? What a surprise! $309,279,389,612, whoops, $398,400 has been spent so far in Iraq. That would be enough to pay for 40,900,000 kids to attend a year of Head Start, for example. Perhaps more to the point, that would be enough to pay for 40, 15 million 993 thousand, basically 15 million full four-year scholarships at public universities for Americans. With the cost of the war in Iraq, we could have put 15 million American young people through four year, full four years at a public university. We're not talking the the local community college, universities. Fifteen million four-year scholarships. I mean, it's it's absolutely mind-boggling when you think of it in that context. We could have hired an additional five million three hundred fifty-nine thousand eight hundred fifty-two teachers for our public schools with the money that we've spent on Iraq so far. You know, see some of these horrifying numbers. Go over to costofwar.com and there's and and. And at the same time, last year was the first year that Americans actually had a negative... How, how do you say it? Uh, it's a negative... In, no, it's not negative. It's Last year was the first year in the history of the United States that Americans spent more money than they brought in. The American family. We actually went in deeper in debt for the first time in the history of the United States as far as i can tell i'm surprised that there you know there wasn't a time during the great depression when this happened but it, apparently debt was not that available people just starved and now we see this stir and this is what you know wakes me up in the middle of the night in the last 12 months sales of existing homes have fallen 4.1% median price of homes in the West dropped three-tenths of a percent. In the Midwest dropped six-tenths of a percent. In the Northeast, they've dropped 2.1%. This is from today's Wall Street Journal. The value of our housing stock is going down. Now, the South, they've gone up 3.2%. So the median price in the United States for the last year is up nine-tenths of a percent. But inflation was more than that. So the actual value of our homes is dropping Now, under ordinary circumstances, that wouldn't be that big a deal, except for the fact that Alan Greenspan and George W. Bush ran this con game on us for a couple of years to try and get the Republicans elected in 2002 and Bush elected in 2004 by driving down interest rates into the negative range. I mean, interest rates were below below inflation rates for a little while there. And because people... Consider the the amount of house they can buy to be a function of their monthly payments, not what the house costs. As the monthly payments dropped, because the interest rates were dropping, people bought more and more expensive houses with the same amount of income. And perhaps more ominously... People all across the United States, whose housing values were going up, they were watching the house that they paid a hundred thousand dollars for, now it's worth one hundred and thirty. The house they paid two hundred thousand dollars worth for is now worth two hundred and fifty. It's a, you know, in some places the house they paid three hundred thousand dollars for is now worth a million. I mean, it's that kind of these kind of wild appreciations around the. United. They turned their houses into ATM machines. They were taking money out of their homes, and in and and the mortgage companies just you know throwing money. Left and right people, I know. I know people who are getting mortgages that that you know interest-only mortgages, where you're you're building no equity whatsoever, and they didn't have to put any down payment down. So what happens if you buy if you buy a hundred thousand dollar home and you get a hundred thousand dollar mortgage, and the the value start to drop, and suddenly your home is only worth ninety thousand dollars? If you're going to sell it, you're going to, you're only going to get 85000 for it because you've got to pay a real estate commission or less than that. So what happened? People walk away from them. I saw this happen back in the 70s, in the recession of the 70s, which was the con- the consequence of, of a very similar process. You had uh, Nixon and his war in Vietnam, and LBJ, the Great Society, and the war in Vietnam, domestic spending combined with war, financed by borrowing. And it came home to roost, by and large, on Jimmy Carter. It was a tough time, and it's just it's it just what spooks me is the possibility of this turning into a, a snowball going downhill. Andrew Tobias, the noted author on money, he's written a number of books about you know handling your money, managing your money, personal money, stuff like that. Over at his website, andrewtobias.com. He's got this housing note. He says, according to Grant's Interest Rate Observer, which credited Yale University economist Robert Schuller for this information, U.S. residential real estate prices rose in real terms after inflation by 66% from 1890 to 2004. From that period of time, you're looking at almost almost 100 years there. Four-tenths of a percent a year. That's been the average. But between 1997 and 2005, this is when Greenspan was driving down interest rates housing values went up 6.2% a year instead of four-tenths of a percent a year. That's, I mean, this is a huge difference. He says if you return to the post-1968 trend lines, that would imply a drop of 22%. In other words, if, we, if, if things kind of go back to normal in the housing market, the value of housing in the United States is going to drop 22%. And he says that, this, would be a deba- this would be a disaster. He says, which of course, for these real estate centric United States, would imply disaster. So you combine the massive debt that the Bush administration and Reagan, the two of them by and large, ran up for the United States, with the debt that Americans have, and and we're in a precarious situation. We need some we need some competent management in this country.
1: I'll be tired but I will
5: turn and I will go Only guessing till I get there then I'll know Oh, I will know That all the children walking home past the factories Can see the light
1: that's shining in my windows i write the song to you Right now we're back with writer and political strategist David Sirota talking about his new book, Hostile Takeover, how big money and corruption conquered our government and how we take it back, and it is absolutely a fantastic book. David, what of the much-bellyhood trade agreements.
8: I'm I'm glad you bring it up because because that's a huge, huge issue. Both parties, unfortunately, have largely embraced trade agreements that are stripped of any labor, human rights, wage, or environmental protections. That is, trade deals that say that other countries that we're trading with can, for instance, have no minimum wage or can allow companies to destroy their environments. That has undermined Americans' wages because it basically has allowed companies to go to those other countries countries without any penalty at all to exploit the most oppressive situations possible. As I document in the book, companies are now regularly threatened to use those trade deals and those lack of protections uh, to prevent workers from demanding higher wages. Just one example, right after NAFTA passed in upstate New York, there was a factory that was having a um, labor dispute over wages, and uh, Cornell researchers documented how the company brought trucks in front of the factory were moving to Mexico, and the company had people loading what looked to be factory equipment onto the trucks the labor dispute obviously quickly ended because it, it, what they were basically saying was if you continue to fight for your wages we'll now use NAFTA to basically ship your jobs overseas.
1: Well, let me ask you this. We know NAFTA has not helped Mexico. Yeah,
8: that's a very important point. Uh, since NAFTA has passed, 20 million more Mexicans now live uh, in poverty. One of the things I've recently written about is that we can look at the silence surrounding the immigration debate on trade. Why are people risking their lives to illegally enter this country? It's because our trade deals in part have helped decimate that economy. If we want to deal with illegal immigration, we have to deal with the trade policy and reform our trade policy to make sure it works for workers on both sides of the border.
1: Now, the way that it did that so people understand the mechanism is by forcing Mexico Which used to grow its own grain for tortillas, etc., corn to open its borders to dumping by giant companies like Cargill and ADM and Monsanto, who are creating subsidized corn in this country. That's right, and then dumping it in Mexico, and now they have to accept it, and it's put out of business. Essentially, every Mexican farmer in northern Mexico.
8: The argument then was, well, those folks who who were coming off the farm will get better-paying jobs in the cities. And what ended up happening was, for a few years, when American companies moved down uh, to Mexico, wages in Mexico rose just a little bit. But then what happened, of course, we signed the China trade deal, the China free trade deal. And those jobs that had emigrated to Mexico then emigrated uh, to China, leaving Mexico essentially decimated. Chinese wages in the cities have risen a bit to about, I think it was $300 or $200 a month. And we see about two months ago, companies are now complaining that those wages are too high and so they're going to move their factory into rural China, where the wages are lower. Well, what happens to urban China? Now we see, as those companies move into rural China and wages potentially rise there, we're looking to sign um, a trade deal with Vietnam and Malaysia, a country that prohibits a minimum wage. And so it begs the question, this is the logical conclusion of this, a trade deal with a country like North Korea that literally has uh, a third of its population enslaved? That is the logical end to this. And it begs the question, what is it in pursuit of? It's in pursuit of higher corporate profit it's <laughs> But decimating the living standards of everybody in its wake. Uh, we have a country now, a government that helps companies export American jobs. And in 2004, the Bush administration was caught, the Commerce Department uh, subsidizing and co-sponsoring forums all over the country, urging and helping companies do the logistics of moving their operations to China. The Bush administration that year uh, also issued a report uh, trumpeting the uh, the benefits of outsourcing. A, a report that President. Bush Bush signed. Uh, and then Congress, of course, reauthorized what's known as the Export-Import Bank, which is one of the biggest travesties uh, in our government. This is a bank funded by taxpayers, which is supposed to subsidize and help companies market their products overseas. What we've found out is that most of those subsidies are going to huge businesses, not to small businesses, and are going, in fact, to some of the biggest outsourcers this country's ever seen. I mean, we've given away billions of dollars over the last 10 years through this bank to a company like GE, which has signed simultaneously reduced its workforce, not hundreds of thousands of jobs. There's an amendment that was brought forward that said when they tried to reauthorize the Export-Import Bank that said no subsidies can go to companies that are simultaneously reducing their American workforce at the same time they are expanding their foreign workforce essentially no subsidies to outsourcers. This bill was voted down, bipartisan legislation voted down by Congress. Really, Congress went on record as saying taxpayers should be subsidizing corporate outsourcers. It's absolutely unbelievable. There is a terrible consequence to the American government using its power on trade to endorse the oppressive behavior of China's government, for instance, to endorse the oppressive behavior of Malaysia's government as we are now in offering that country a free Trade deal. We are essentially saying to the world, forget about democracy. We don't care about worker rights. We don't care about the environment. All we care about is helping the corporations who write our trade policy make as much money as possible, even if it runs roughshod over American workers and foreign workers.
1: Let's talk about debt for a second, what we've done to our country with this national debt, and then what's happening with consumer debt, and how does that benefit corporations?
8: time high in terms of personal debt. And that's a big money maker for the credit card and banking industry. That profit came at the same time the industry was pushing the bankruptcy bill, a member of your family got sick and you had to pay health, higher healthcare costs. You are thrown to the wolves, but if you rip off your shareholders, you rip off your pension retirees and your company, tens of millions of dollars, you get expanded bankruptcy protections.
1: How about Thomas Friedman? Where does he fit into this?
8: I'm a big critic of Tom Friedman. I, I think that that he basically has oversimplified the situation. He's very good at, at using anecdotes to say that uh, all of our trade policy and our outsourcing policy is actually serving good ends. He never really talks to people here who are living through the awful parts of this trade policy. And he never talks to people who are living through the awful facets of this trade policy in other countries. Do you have a candidate for 2008? And I think that candidates who don't want to talk about the hostile takeover, who don't want to talk about the economic class war being waged by our government and by big money interests on ordinary citizens, are, are candidates who are not being honest with what is the biggest challenge facing this country.
1: David, thanks so much for joining us on Ring of Fire. David Sirota's book is Hostile Takeover, How Big Money and Corruption Conquered Our Government and How We Take It Back. It is an amazing book, David. It should be required reading for every American. Thanks for doing it, and thanks for joining us.
8: Thanks for having me. (laughs) They
5: were here first What you said did, mm, what you say, mm, that it's all for the best, cause it is, mm, what you say, mm, that it's just one we need, you decided this, mm, what you say, mm, what did she say?
8: It is an audio clip.
9: Uh, everybody gets to hear it. But on com, you're going to see the glasses he wore while he was talking. The Dude, I mean, I don't know what he was going for. I don't know if he was going for the Liberace look here. But if he was going for the cool biker look, he missed by about 38 miles. Just 38 miles, though. Okay, so it's like, a, it's like a Dukakis in a tank kind of moment, if you ask me. I think it looks awful. But anyway, we'll show you the pictures as we run the dumb uh, audio.
7: And if you're in your car, when you get home, you can log on to the Young Turks, and I bet we have the picture posted.
9: Uh, not only posted, but, you know, the show loops 24 hours a day right. on the Young Turks. Audio so,
7: so you're on. not really missing out.
10: You just got to reboot to the TYT when you get home.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right, very true. Here we go. Uh, The other day I went to York,
1: Pennsylvania to visit the
6: Harley-Davidson plant. Harley. They're selling motorcycles all over the world. Harley has doubled its workforce uh, in the past decade. In other words, things are good for American workers and good for (laughs) the entrepreneurs. And that's good for the country.
3: That
10: is the goofiest picture I've ever seen of him.
9: Okay, let me explain you this. First of all, Damn. I saw a shot actually that had the glasses even closer up, and it looks totally purple, and it's just, it's it I don't know, Elton John, Raji, whatever. I'm not calling the president gay. <laughs> I'm just saying it. So funny, settled glasses to put on. Anyway, second of all, uh, uh, they've uh, doubled their jobs in the last uh, decade. Things are good for the American worker. No. In other words, the uh, economy's good. <laughs> Is that, oh, in other words. Yeah. I see. Oh, okay. That's the sophisticated thought you came up with after, in other words?
10: That's like Joe Lieberman talking about when he went to Iraq and uh, people had cell phones and he saw some satellite dishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, These are good. These are good. Safe in Iraq. People things getting are, Comcast. Uh, safe in Iraq. I saw some people watching. Uh, the Sopranos. Watching a Lifetime of television or for women. They didn't have television for women. <laughs>
1: <and> during saddam <laughs> we're
9: gonna take more calls in a second 866-99-SERIES-866-997-4748 also on the web at theyoungturks.com but ben is very right um th- whatever people see satellite dishes people are like oh progress yeah I don't <laughs> and like they'll go to turkey right and they will be mm-hmm. like oh muslim country this is going to be dark and you know everybody's going to be covered up first of all they see the hot chicks and they're like ooh. you hey, know satellite
10: that. dishes are just put up to like board up a hole in the wall <laughs>
9: Yeah. They don't work. No, no. The satellite dishes do work. That's the first thing people buy. That's the great thing. And then they'll see satellite dishes all over Turkey, and they'll be like, ooh, it's quite developed here. Yeah, I know. It's, <laughs> I, I, I love
10: people who, you know, look, it's funny to say, but people, look, It's not. I'm not saying that sort of your sort of the observations that an individual makes during the course of the day or a week or a month or even a year or a lifetime are to be dismissed. I mean, you go to an area, you come back a year later, and you see a lot more businesses, you can say. That area is developing.
2: Oh,
9: absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and when but, I go to Turkey and then, like, I come back three years later, because that's usually yeah. how long it takes now, you see new skyscrapers. You see a beautiful new wall right, just right. like you and would. You think, and, okay,
10: there's money yeah. being invested here. Stuff is happening here. Money is being turned over. But it doesn't mean there aren't ridiculously poor people in Turkey, of course. And it also but, – but mainly it's that, like, if you want to be like George Bush, you can walk down the street and decide that every event is symbolic of a larger event. Mm-hmm. And this is something we all do wrong all the time. And like I was, in, I was in the McDonald's today at lunch. It was really crowded. People are eating out more. In, in other words, know. the American economy is uh, yeah. good. I was at Starbucks today and a lot of people were getting ventis. The economy is back on track. People
9: are tired. <laughs> uh, in other words, uh, people are drinking coffee. <laughs> a lot of people are drinking coffee.
7: <laughs> a lot of people out there need a kick.
9: Uh, you know, uh, 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 uh. They need a kick. That's <laughs> one of their famous quotes. We'll get to that uh, in a second oh, right. as well. No, I'll
10: make it. No, but now, i just show you that I, I'm part of it. I, I, and some of them may be true. Like in my old neighborhood, which was a a nice neighborhood, <laughs> as opposed to the neighborhood where I've, I've purchased a home. It's not a nice neighborhood. You live in Brentwood. I don't live in Brentwood. <laughs> I couldn't live less in Brentwood. You live in West Los Angeles. I live in West Los Angeles. Oh. It, it's not, let me tell you something. The Mexican women in my neighborhood now, are, are pushing their own children's strollers. Okay? That's the difference between the neighborhood I live in now as opposed to the neighborhood I used to live in. Right? Mm-hmm. Now, in my old neighborhood... By the way,
9: let's just get real. It's a fine neighborhood. <laughs> oh, no, it is, but I mean... I was You're in a, not living in Compton. Let's no, no,
10: no, 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 no. But I mean, no, there were uh, cop You're cars... You're in my neighborhood. No, the, look, I walk out of the house yesterday, and I see a guy across the street uh, wearing a t-shirt, an ill-fitting t-shirt. He's showing his belly. Shorts. He's got no shoes on. Right? He's out, And I'm thinking, he came out of his house, he went to his car. Right? It's no big deal. He didn't Put shoes on. It's my neighbor. Hey, howdy, neighbor. Right, I'm walking the dog. I go around the block, and I run into the guy three blocks away still without any shoes (laughs) on. Okay, he wasn't out checking on his car. (laughs) He's out for a stroll, and he didn't put any shoes on. Um, I'm just, and it's fine. It's fine, but it's different. And the cops are pulling people over in the neighborhood, and there was a a little arrest there. No, no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying they, what, my point wasn't that I live in a bad neighborhood it's not but it's not a good neighborhood it's mm-hmm. just a neighborhood it's where people live and it's, I actually do you have a bunker because you might have to hide I the arguably like it a little more because of that like there's just Right.
9: Oh, you're so liberal. Jesus. Oh, you want to live with the people.
10: No, no, no. But I mean, everybody in my old neighborhood was like,
9: everybody was right. Well, you're the one who wants to go and knock on doors and yeah. walk in. I know. It's ridiculous. So the people can meet you. Not that people can meet me so I can meet the people. No, I
10: like, I just <laughs> like seeing, I just like having life around. That's all. But I, I, I but I love but my... Real life. I like the life that you've been Look, I love my in. other neighborhood. And if I could have afforded a house in that neighborhood, I would have bought it in a heartbeat. But I can't afford it. I couldn't even come close to affording it. But but in my old neighborhood, uh, just as a way of observation, like uh, every like fourth house was having work done. There was ev- work being done, additions made, improvements made on every house. And I actually thought, okay, clearly the sort of home improvement business, at least in Los Angeles, is booming. And it's very hard to get a contractor. So it must be true. And I thought, where are these people getting this money? And I'm thinking from George Bush. I'm thinking it's... For rich people who live in my neighborhood, they have gotten enormous tax breaks, and they are reinvesting that money in their homes. Oh, okay. I don't know whether it's true, but it was my thought. Oh,
9: my I parents see. are redoing their bathroom right now.
10: Right, because they probably got money that they didn't expect to get, I mean, which is good. That's one of the good things. That puts a lot of people to work. That is one of the good things about tax cuts.
8: No wonder mm. we
9: went to a steak restaurant when my dad came to town. Interesting. <laughs> my dad doesn't usually
1: take us to a steak restaurant. <laughs> All right. See, without the tax relief package, there would have been a deficit, but there wouldn't have been the commiserate, uh, the, the 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 not commiserate, the 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 kick to our economy. Right. right. See, I have that occurred as a result of the
10: tax relief. I have noticed a tremendous amount in in my neighborhood, of my old neighborhood, of com, com, <laughs> commiserate commiserate work being done. No, no, kick, kick, kick to the houses that no, you've, you've seen. Been a kick to the houses. Now oh. people are actually just working on their own homes in your neighborhood. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, but it's totally true. I mean, I'm telling you, as far as your little observation is that you – in my old neighborhood, you would see the Hispanic women pushing the white kids around. Mm-hmm. In this new neighborhood, the Hispanic women are pushing their own children around. Wow. And you have to live in that squalor? I tell you, man, I feel like i got to take a shower every half hour.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, if you have – something solid near you to hang on to i I would hang on to that if i were you if for no other reason than to prevent unnecessary uh head trauma from falling after you hear what's going on i may have and not a moment too soon passed into the realm of an actual podcaster i think today for the first time I'm I'm actually doing some podcast type things, you know, things that people do on a podcast. I have a correction, kind of maybe, an email, which is actually the same thing that the correction is, and a news story to bring you. It's, it's craziness. So, anyways, let's start out. I got an email just today from a very kind listener, uh, Robert. Uh, I um, I will read his email, although I will not yell it as the uh, capital letters might have you uh, think uh, it was intended. I do not believe that it was intended to be yelled. He writes, just a note on your 831 broadcast, even though it's a podcast. Anyways, that was yesterday's show. He says, you ended your podcast with a clip of of a talking head... Uh, once again, I hate to be picky. I think the talking heads are just the people on TV um, because of the way their head is framed. So anyways, he's, ta- he's referring to Tom Hartman from yesterday's episode, uh, the very last clip of yesterday's episode. And um, so uh, with a clip, Tom Hartman referring to World War II firebombings in Pacific Northwest and German U-boats off our Atlantic coast. Atlantic Coast, implying that Roosevelt's response was to deliver his The Only Thing We Have to Fear Is Fear Itself speech, One Problem. That speech was given in 1933 in response to the nation's collapsing banking system long before Hitler started his expansion in 1938. On the contrary, Roosevelt was a hawk in today's terminology and slowly prepared the country for war from 1938 until Pearl Harbor. This is conflating two unrelated events to prove one's point very similar to the usage of Iraq and 9-11 by the administration. Please don't give this kind of tactic any more airtime by passing it along on your podcast. It makes us no better than the deceitful liars on the right wing. So there you go. Um, So, Robert, you may very well have an excellent point. Uh, I did just as much fact-checking on your email as I did on Tom Hartman's clip from yesterday, which is to say zero. So uh, just like any uh, highly qualified uh, modern-day journalist, I have presented both sides, and I will let you, the listener, decide for yourself uh, who is right. I have—I honestly have no reason to doubt, uh, Robert, obviously, you sound like you know what you're talking about. And I, I, in all honesty, excuse me. In all honesty, kind of got retarded there. In all honesty, I recommend you email that to Tom Hartman. You can uh, reach him through his website at tomhartman.com. No matter how you spell it, it'll get you there. And uh, and send him that email because. That sounds like an issue that needs to be addressed, and I I wouldn't be surprised if he uh, actually took steps to not make that kind of mistake again, but I, you know, if, if everything you said is true, I agree with you 100%, and that's why I'm bringing it up right now. Secondly, I have a news story, which I will read from the article in its entirety. Reading, An entire news article. Here we go. A priest has died after trying to demonstrate how Jesus walked on water. Evangelist preacher Frank Cable, 35, told his congregation he could repeat the biblical miracle. But he drowned after walking out to sea from a beach in the capital Libreville in Gabon, West Africa. One eyewitness said, He told churchgoers he had a revelation that if he had enough faith, he could walk on water like Jesus. He took his congregation to the beach, saying he would walk across the Como estuary, which takes 20 minutes by boat. He walked into the water, which soon passed over his head, and he never came back. Unquote the end. Oh, good times. Good times. I got that from... Philip Bump's blog if you're not already in love with wasting time at work uh, I don't know what your problem is and if you are in love with it then I see no reason why you should not subscribe to his blog he always links to great uh, news articles such as these Uh, in his blog post he referred to this as uh, proof of evolution as in survival of the fittest and uh I I couldn't put it much better than that. So on that high note, I will leave you until the next time we speak, which may be sooner than you think. We'll see how it goes. Talk to you guys later.
5: now black and white who took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet the only maker that you want to meet
1: a dying man in a living room whose shadow bases
5: the floor will take you out in the open door this is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like It's just a fond farewell to a friend I couldn't get things right
0: it all. It's time for America to pull their heads out of their asses and understand what's really happening in this country. The Rampage Podcast. I'm Dan Royer, host of the Rampage Podcast. My mission is to keep free speech free and expose the truth about American politics. Join me five days a week for never-ending truth that you're not going to hear in the corporate media. Look, if you're sick of a Congress that is overspending yet underfunding, an administration that is overstepping the bounds of the Constitution and underestimating the intelligence of the American people, then you'll learn a thing or two from The Rampage Podcast. Visit the show at www.therampagepodcast.com. I promise to keep free speech free on The Rampage Podcast.